Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? And that might sound a little bit odd because we read uh, at the very start of service the triumphal entry passage, the quintessential understanding of what happened on that Palm Sunday. And many of you might be saying, Pastor Matt, why are we not simply going back to that message? I mean, after all, you could have just recycled the one you had. And then some of you remember how long it was. And maybe you think this is a good thing that we're not going back to it. A couple reasons why we're going to be in a different place today. First of all, we did move through that triumphal entry passage not that long ago. In fact, it was the Sunday after Christmas. We talked about how that fit in. We talked about it, how appropriate it was even that we celebrated that at Christmas as they celebrated the coming of the king into Jerusalem and we looked forward to the coming of the king once again. And that's really the second reason why we're going to jump outside of Matthew's gospel. And that is because I don't want us to simply reflect on the triumphal entry as a historical fact that we celebrate and that we decorate the church for and kind of leave it there. Um, When we read that account of upwards of hundreds of thousands of people gathered around Christ as he rides down that Mount of Olives and into his city, you can feel the anticipation. You can feel the desire, the longing to have a deliverer finally among his people. And we know that their anticipation was entirely appropriate. It was laid on the right object, but their hope was misplaced. They wanted a deliverer, but they wanted a political deliverer. And we know that Christ did not come at that time to sit on the throne, but to move toward the cross. But the reality is that 2,000 years later, plus or minus, we are a people who are still living in waiting. Because that Christ who came said that he was coming again problem is that we've been waiting a long time and that if there's anything that I've heard more consistently than ever before in my life over the last couple of years it's that people are tired people are weary through COVID through a world in upheaval through just the general unknowns of life people by and large are running toward empty so the question is how do we wait like we're supposed to How do we somehow gather the strength and the courage and the intestinal fortitude to be a people who continue to long, but long with hope for the coming of our King? That's why I want to move toward Hebrews, because Hebrews 12 tells us how to be a people who wait. It tells us what to place our attention, our focus, our affections on, even when we're weary and waiting and reminds us how we can continue to be worshiping. So if you're not there already, find your way to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, which is where we're going today. Hebrews chapter 12, this is what God's Word says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people in tension, a people with every reason to hope, but a people who find ourselves often distressed, a people with a knowledge of your promises, your goodness and your faithfulness throughout all generations, but a people who sometimes, if we're honest, find ourselves questioning and wondering. Lord, will you open our eyes today 
so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Will you open our eyes and soften our hearts so that once again we're reminded of who you are, who it is that we wait for, and why we can wait with patience, with endurance, with great hope. And Lord, don't leave it there. Convict us where there is sin. Bring us to repentance. Remind us of the graceful, joyful reality of forgiveness. And help us to be a people who proclaim the peace of Christ to everyone that we meet until you do come again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the reasons that we don't just kind of pick and choose spots to go through in the Bible, one of the reasons we progress all the way through a book is because it's really hard to just kind of parachute into a place without developing context. It's kind of a recipe for disaster as far as it comes to interpreting and understanding Scripture because it allows me to bring in a lot of what I want to see into a passage rather than what the author and ultimately the Holy Spirit intended. Understanding all that, we're going to jump right into the end, basically, of the book of Hebrews, uh, but I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of what the book is all about, and most of us who have read through it uh, could tell you that the idea of Hebrews, the main thought that the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, the main thought that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across is that Jesus is better. You go all the way through the book and throughout all the warning passages and the calls back to faithfulness, there's this resounding and continuing theme of the fact that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He provides a better rest than Joshua in the promised land of Israel. Uh, he is the better high priest of a better covenant who brings a better sacrifice and enacts better promises on behalf of his people. Over and over and over, Jesus is better. And by the time you come to chapter 11, uh, we find that the way that you come into these better promises of Jesus is by faith. In fact, the author says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not difficult, uh, not sort of a hard time, not you might or might not be able to do it, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then the rest of chapter 11 is this list of men and women throughout the ages who live lives of remarkable faith. God responding to his people under incredible and sometimes unthinkable circumstances. And then chapter 12 tells us why it matters to us. Because waiting is hard. Because faithfulness is hard to maintain. In fact, faithfulness is impossible to maintain on my own. And sometimes in the waiting, I wonder whether it's worth it. Sometimes I wonder whether it's even possible to live life in a way that God has called us to, given the state of the world. But opening chapter 12 helps us to see that it's not only possible, not only expected, that it is provided for by the strength and the faithfulness of God. And so as we open up chapter 12, the first thing that we're going to look at is God's proven faithfulness. And the fact that we don't have to question it because God has proven his faithfulness over and over. And of course, we open that up in chapter 12. And the first thing that we see is that that faithfulness is something that we can go to the past and look at. God has displayed great faithfulness in the past. Look at verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that therefore drives us back into chapter 11. So since it's very close there in your Bibles, I'm going to have you turn back to chapter 11. And we're going to kind of follow this through to see what he's talking about when he says, therefore, why it matters. Chapter 11 is all about faith, and it starts with a definition of what faith is. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is what faith is. It is this, steady, this settled, steady heart assurance that something is true even if I have not seen it. That is not the way the world typically talks about faith. 
Uh, I have been that student that has misplaced faith on test day. You come into the class. You've done nothing to prepare. You haven't opened the book all semester, but you hope, beyond hope, that somehow this is all going to turn out all right. That is not faith. That is foolishness. And I've demonstrated that on several occasions in my life. Faith is a settled knowledge that something is true, although you have not seen firsthand the outcome. And that's why he goes in verse 3 to talk about an example of what that looks like. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. None of us were there at the beginning. It is through faith that we understand that when God says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that that is true. Although we did not see that, God was there and he has communicated to us what that looked like. And so it is by faith that we have the understanding that that is true. But faith is not merely a list of things that I agree with. Faith isn't just a list of facts that I ascribe to. Faith is that settled heart understanding, but that settled heart understanding also then drives our actions. Faith leads to action. All of you right now are displaying faith in something. And I know that because none of you are sitting over the pews kind of hovered with your arms out, wondering whether they're going to bear your weight. Those pews are old. They're not that comfortable. They creak a little bit. But every one of you, when you sat down, at least as far as I could see, you did that with a fair amount of confidence. Why? Because you had faith that that would bear you up. Your faith impacts your action. And that's what the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 is. It is the reality of faith in the lives of these men and women that drives then their obedient response. It's faith that led Abraham to leave his home, not knowing where he was going, simply because God told him to. It was by faith that Sarah conceived a child, even though she was well beyond childbirthing years. It's by faith that Moses led people across the Red Sea on dry land. It's by faith that Rahab hid the spies in Jericho at the risk of her own life and wound up finding life and a place in the people of God. And we read those narratives, whether in Hebrews or whether we go back to the passages in the Old Testament, we read those narratives, and somehow, sometimes we kind of put these people up on a pedestal, and we say, well, they must be made just of different stuff. These are our faithful heroes who are just somehow fundamentally different than you and I, and Hebrews 11 really tears that down because they were not marked out as separate and distinct by God. They were not rewarded by God for their goodness, for their strength, for their knowledge. The only thing that made them remarkable was their faith. That's why it says in chapter, in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. All of these are lives that simply demonstrated faith in God. But we say, well, maybe so, but things tended to work out pretty well for them. Abraham believed and he was blessed. Sarah had faith and she had a child. What happens when I'm faithful and nothing gets better? What happens when I stay faithful and life gets more difficult, when the battles seem to always be losing, when the losses just seem to pile up? What happens when my Red Sea doesn't dry up? (laughs) Maybe more personally, what happens when I can't conceive? What happens when faith doesn't seem to work? 
I want you to look toward the end of Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Verse 32. He's preparing to wrap up that list, and he says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. And you say, exactly, that's what I'm talking about. God seems to have always been ready to work on their behalf, at least for those people. What about me while I'm trying to wait really, really well and nothing is working out? That's why we have to keep reading. Verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Hard stop. Look at what comes next. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves of the earth. All of these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God's evaluation of them was that they were men and women of whom the world was not worthy. They suffered and suffered well. They suffered and obeyed through that great faith that didn't lead them to great prosperity, but it led them to great approval by their great God. And through Hebrews chapter 11, he reminds us that God was not absent for a moment of that suffering. None of it happened outside of his plan. None of it happened outside of his sovereignty. None of it happened outside of his understanding. None of it happened outside of his purpose. In fact, he used their suffering to sharpen, to refine, and to encourage the believers that he's writing to, and even to us. God has divine purpose in everything he does, and as you turn back to chapter 12, that's what he's talking about when he says we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Sometimes you might hear this preached, and it's like we're, we're kind of running our race on the track there, and we have this great cloud of witnesses in the stands cheering us on, saying, you know, you can do it, keep going. I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. The fact is that sometimes as I'm running... I despair, I get weary, I get tired. We are surrounded by a cloud of faithful witnesses who through their lives and through the testimony of scriptures cry out that a faithful response is possible because we serve a perfectly faithful God. In victory and in tragedy, in blessing and in hardship, he is the God who never leaves or abandons his people. That is a consistent theme through this book. It is wrapped up and it's the background for every warning in the book of Hebrews. Don't drift. Don't turn back. Don't shrink back. Don't abandon what you know to be true. Your suffering is real and it hurts, but God is not absent in that suffering. Look back. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. From the beginning of creation to the last of the prophets and ongoing who remind you that God is faithful. And even though many of them never saw the blessing of his promises this side of heaven, God can be trusted. 
And then he moves on and says, this is why that faithfulness in the past matters, because it impacts how we think about being faithful in the present. So he says, therefore, since because we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, so what? So therefore, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. They did that. Let us also do these same things. And he moves from the idea of witnesses to the idea of us being in a race. And that is incredibly purposeful because a race isn't just a random jogging. A race has purpose. A race requires effort. A race requires preparation. A race requires endurance. And a race well run is rewarded in the end. And in order to run well, which is what we are doing now, as we wait for the king, we are not simply twiddling our fingers. We are running the race that he has laid out for us. And as we do that, we are called to run in a way that is excellent. How do we do that? Let us lay aside every weight. Every encumbrance, your Bible might say. Lay aside those things that would hinder your run. And he doesn't talk about sin first. He will in a moment. But sin is not the only thing that hinders us from running well. Sometimes things are simply extra weight. I know I don't look like it. I ran track and cross country in high school. And on race day, everybody wore the same thing to school. Fall, springtime, wet, dry, didn't matter. We all wore the same thing to school. You wore your warm-up track suit with the long pants and the lightweight jacket and then your uniform underneath that. But you know what? Nobody showed up to the starting line still wearing their warm-ups. Now, when it was time to run the race, you took off the sweatpants and revealed the embarrassingly short racing shorts. You took off the jacket and you had just the running tank top so that every possible hindrance was put aside. Now, did we do that because jackets and pants are evil? Of course not. It's simply something that would have slowed us down. There are lots of things that we could think of that are not necessarily evil, but might very well hinder us from running our race. Good and even necessary things. Work is not evil. Jobs are the means through which God most often provides financially for his people. We're even called to be faithful in how we work, but we all know that a job can very quickly become an idol. That it can become the center of my attention and my affection and my time, and before you know it, you look up and you have financial security, but the kids are gone, your wife's a stranger, you haven't been meaningfully involved in the body of Christ in years, and the money is really all you have. And what God gave for good wound up being a hindrance. We enter into various relationships. I talk about this with high schoolers all the time. The idea of relationships, they're not a bad thing. That God has placed within us a desire to be with other people. But how quickly can those relationships take the place of priority in my life? And I begin to change who I am, what I think, what I say, so that that one person might set their affection on me rather than pursuing the approval of Christ first. And something that's designed to bring joy becomes something that hinders us. The author says, put all of that aside. Focus on something central. And not only those weights, but he also says in the sin, sin that clings to us so closely. Similar idea, but important distinctions. Uh, an encumbrance, a weight, might not be a negative in and of itself. Sin never has any redeeming value. Uh, sin is always rebellion against God. 
And he pictures it as this sin which kind of envelops us and clings to us so closely. Most of us kind of can picture in our mind that idea of the Greek or the Roman person from this period of history wearing like the long flowing toga, and whether or not that's historically accurate, uh, most of us can kind of picture that in our minds. Can you imagine running a race in a long flowing garment? And as you run, those folds just seem to kind of wrap their way into your arms and legs and bind you up. Uh, Athletes wouldn't run with an untied shoelace. They certainly would not run in a bathrobe. That's what sin does. It entangles us. It ensnares us. It binds us up and prevents us from running well. And he says, put it away. That's why Paul says to put it to death. We're called to run with endurance because that is what our Christian race needs. Endurance. Not just a grin and bear it, gut it out, hold on as long as you can, but a patient, settled conviction of where I'm going and what I'm running toward. Sometimes that seems very easy. Sometimes the race of the Christian life feels all downhill with the wind at your back and you can't wait to take the next step. But for many of us, the race has felt uphill for a long time. Some of us, and maybe some of you sitting here today, don't even want to keep counting the laps until the end. Money's tight, relationships are hard, God's word seems distant, hard to apply. You pray and it feels like your words kind of hit the ceiling and bounce right back down to you. How can the Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, tell us to keep going? And not just to keep going, but to run with patient endurance this race that has been set before us. Well, this first verse is a precious reminder that faithfulness and obedience are not and have never been wrapped up in easy circumstances. Faithfulness and obedience have always been wrapped up in the object of our faith. And he proved that he was faithful in the past. And he will continue to be faithful to his people even now. So if that is you, if you are tired and weak and weary, look back. Remember the cloud of witnesses to the faithfulness of God. But how do I know that God will stay faithful? How do I know that that God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, how do I know that he'll keep the promises that he made? How do I know that when Jesus said I'm coming back, he hasn't changed or altered that promise? How do I know that I'm still waiting for the right things? Well, because not only have we seen faithfulness in the past, but we've also seen the perfect faithfulness of the one that we're waiting for. We've seen the perfect faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to tell us to focus on, looking to Jesus. This is where our focus has to be drawn. Not only look to the past, but ultimately look to Jesus. I was at a track meet yesterday with Nathan, and it is amazingly funny to watch little kids run, because whether you're telling them to run one lap around the whole track, or whether you're telling them to run 100 meters just down one straight side of the track, little ones do not naturally stay in their lane. And that is because their heads go everywhere but toward the finish line. They're looking for mom and dad and their friends and their shoes and everywhere else. And when they do, the course looks just like this. And it is hilarious. Dangerous, but hilarious. 
No, runners focus on where they are going. They know the object, the goal of what they're running towards, and that's what he's going to say. Look to Jesus. Your focus has to be on Jesus, and that totally fits in with the whole theme of the book. If Jesus is better, then it should not come as any surprise to us that he's better even than all of those remarkable lives in chapter 11. Look to them, yes. Be reminded of God's faithfulness, yes. But ultimately, keep your eyes focused and fixed on Jesus. Why? Because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The author and perfecter. The pioneer in some uh, people I've heard it translated and perfecter. Jesus is the one that goes before and that stands behind our faith. He is the initiator and the completer of our faith. And that is such good news. The idea that faith is described as a gift. Our faith comes with divine initiative behind it. Can you imagine if faith was something you had to work hard to obtain? Can you imagine if our faith was something we had to work for and ultimately lay a hold of with our own effort? What an exhausting pursuit of something we could never actually catch up to. And then can you imagine that after we worked for that faith, after we worked hard to try and come to it, then it was also up to us to maintain that faith, to keep that faith going and growing and vibrant and healthy as we walk through this kind of world. A world where I'm often tired, where I'm often discouraged, where I'm often distracted. Can you imagine if my faith was up to me to gain and maintain? This verse is a precious reminder that it is not. Jesus is the author of our faith. Jesus is the one who outlined our faith, the idea, uh, we all know when we talk about like a scout or a pioneer in the wilderness, somebody who would go before, who would map out the hills and the valleys and the potential pitfalls, who would make the road ready. That is what Jesus has done for us. He has gone before and he doesn't call us to work toward our faith. He calls us to a faith that he has prepared for us. And he's also the perfecter of our faith. What a heartbreaking thing it would be to hear that God saves you, but now you are responsible for doing the rest of the work. What a joyful comfort it is to know that Jesus perfects his people. One of the most discouraging things at times is coming face to face with our own sin as believers, isn't it? I know what's right. I make plans to do what's right, I try hard to do what's right, and I wind up failing again. When am I going to get it right? And the answer is, and always has been, never on my own strength, for it is Christ who completes it. That's why Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus never been about our ability to start our faith. It's never been about our ability to maintain our faith. It has never been about our ability to bring our faith to fruition. That is who we look to. Not only do we look to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, we look to one who, while he walked on this earth, demonstrated perfect faithfulness. We have been in Matthew's gospel for yet a little while, and we'll be in it for yet a little while longer. But as we move through it, what have we seen over and over? The perfect faithfulness of Jesus. 
whether it's in the face of fickle crowds or uh, antagonistic religious leaders or simply being surrounded by stubborn and stiff-necked disciples. He has never once failed or faltered, has he? And all the way through Matthew's gospel, he has never shown any signs of cracking under the pressure. Tempted by Satan in the wilderness, weak and weary and hungry, not once did he fail, moving to a cross that he did not deserve for sins that were not his, suffering the hatred of men, and more than that, bearing the wrath of God, not one failure on the part of our perfect Savior. How do we know that Jesus is coming back? How do we know that when he said, I will return, we can have faith in that promise? Because he has never once failed. Because he demonstrates perfect faithfulness and always has. So lay off those weights. Cast aside those burdens and those distractions. Rip off that sin and run with faithful, patient endurance because the object of our endurance is worthy of our pursuit. And here's what we're running for because not only did he demonstrate perfect faithfulness, but he actually finished the work that he came to accomplish. His perfect faithfulness, his finished work has eternal results. Look to Jesus, the author, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why? What did he do? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross? Despising the shame, Jesus did not go to the cross as an unwilling victim. He did not go to the cross as an accident. He did not go to the cross as a change of plans when the messianic promise didn't seem to be working out as he thought it would. He went to the cross knowing full well what it meant and what it would cost. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. And if you set that in the context of chapter 11, it flows beautifully. Why would Abraham leave a land where he was home and comfortable and familiar to go to a place that he did not know? Because he trusted in the better promises of God. Isaac, Jacob, all of these people who pursued obedience, even though they would never see the fullness of that promise in their lifetime, why would they do it? Because they trusted in the promises of God. Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He was obedient. He was perfectly faithful, knowing what it would accomplish. He did not go to the cross wondering if maybe God had made a mistake. He did not go to the cross wondering if the Father's will had changed. He did not go to the cross wondering and simply hoping upon hope that someday someone would understand and that this would be impactful. He went to the cross knowing that God had promised to give him a people and that his work would once and for all atone for the sins of those people. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Maybe you remember back a couple of chapters ago in Matthew, James and John bring mom, and they come before Jesus and they say, when you're in your kingdom, put my sons down, one at your right and one at your left. They were asking for the places of honor. Jesus has the place of ultimate honor. He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did not stay dead. We are in the Easter season. We are driving our hearts to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ is not the dead founder of a dead religion, but that he is our living Savior who gives us a living hope. And the fact that he is seated matters. Because if he is the better high priest, it shows that he has done a better work. You go back and you read through the Old Testament and the priests were always busy and there are no chairs in the tabernacle and the temple because there was always something to do. 
There's always another candle to make sure that's lit. There's always another loaf that has to be changed. There's always another offering of incense that has to be made. Always another bull, another goat, another lamb, another bird, another grain offering. Always something that must be done because sin carries on. And because the wages of sin is death, every sin demands a sacrifice. Do you understand that when Jesus is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, it is because when he said it is finished, it was finished. That all of the work necessary to accomplish salvation on behalf of ruined sinners was done. How is it that we can run with patient endurance? It's because Christ finished his course. Because Jesus perfectly accomplished his work. And you know what he's doing now? He's not just sitting and waiting. Although he does wait until the time when his enemies will be made a footstool and he will return and rule and reign. Hebrews 7.25, just a few chapters earlier, says that he is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. As he is at the right hand of the Father, he continually intercedes for his people. ever wonder why God would bother to tolerate you? I do. After all, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know better. Why is it that a God who is perfectly faithful and perfectly holy would ever even be burdened by keeping his promises to someone like me? Because the Savior intercedes on my behalf. Our adversary, the devil, the accuser, would love to point out the failure and say that it disqualifies us and he wouldn't be wrong. Our failure, our sin, makes us unfit to be in God's presence, but Jesus Christ pleads our case. He does not plead my goodness, thank God. He does not plead my strength. He does not plead my worthiness. As he sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father and as he intercedes for his people, he pleads his perfect work of redemption. That is why he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is not a righteousness of my own that maintains me. It is the righteousness of Christ that's placed on us. That brings us to the last verse that we'll look at today. How do we anticipate the coming of Christ in a broken and hostile world where we look back to his perfect faithfulness? We do that by looking to Jesus, the perfect example of faithfulness and the one who ensures our victory because of his obedience. And finally, in verse 3, we're going to look very quickly at why it's possible to wait, even now, with a patient faithfulness. And in verse 3, the first thing that we're called to look at is Christ's suffering. Look what he writes. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider Jesus. Look to him. Think on him. And you say, well, that seems to be a recurring theme. Look back. Remember the witnesses. And then turn your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Be reminded of what he endured on the cross, despising the shame. Be reminded that he's right now at the right hand of the Father. What's the point in saying it again? What's he pointing to? He's not pointing to the nature of Christ. Here he's pointing specifically and inviting us and calling us to consider, to think on the suffering of Christ. 
consider Jesus the one who suffered at the hands of sinners. You ever think about that? The fact that Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of sinners? Does that make any sense to you? If you were to go back to the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author opens with this picture of who Jesus is. And at the very beginning, he writes, long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that son is the one whom he appointed as heir of all things. That son is the one through which he created the world. And he, that son, that Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, that is Jesus, upholds the universe by the, world, by the word of his power. How can that son suffer at the hands of men? How does the creator suffer at the hands of his creation? He has to willingly allow that. He does that for a divine purpose. We already saw some of it. For the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He did it for the reward that was before him. There are other reasons. We could go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says that Christ suffered for us, leaving an example for us to follow. Jesus shows us how to suffer faithfully. Even in unjust, unfair, unright circumstances, he shows us what it looks like to suffer with faithfulness and obedience and peace in trusting ourselves to the will of God. But I think there's something more. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 2. As we go back to Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus has been said to be better than the angels. He's going to work through the idea that he's better than Moses, that he's a better, uh, not just a steward over the house, but that he's a son in the house. In Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. See if you can pick up why the suffering of Christ matters. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you see it? In his suffering, he becomes a faithful and a merciful high priest. Consider this. As you suffer, your great and merciful high priest, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who keeps every atom on its course even now throughout the whole of this universe by the word of his power, he suffered like you've suffered. He knew fatigue. He knew hunger. He knew betrayal. He knew sorrow. And every time you and I pray, Every time we cry out to him in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our victory, in our impatience, 
We do not pray to a God who is distant and far off and uncaring. We pray to a great and merciful high priest who was made like us in every way, only without sin. Do you know how precious it is to pray to a God who knows and who cares? Who loves and bears up the sorrows of his people. As we wait for him to return, it is a beautiful comfort to know that he has compassion on the weak and on the weary. And what's the result of all of this? What's the hope? Why consider Christ and his suffering? Because that is ultimately what gives us our strength. Look at the last part of verse 3 there. Oh, back to chapter 12. That would help. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't find your strength in your own strength. Don't find strength in your own endurance. Don't find strength in your own circumstances or your own abilities. Look to the suffering of Christ and be reminded that this great and faithful and merciful high priest, in considering that, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How do we endure difficult circumstances, difficult relationships, difficult people with grace and patience and hope by considering Jesus? We do not wait with patient endurance because life is easy. We do not wait with patient endurance because we know exactly how long we have to go. We only have to bear up for this much longer and then it'll all be over. We don't know that. We wait with patience. We run with endurance because we know who it is we are focused on. We know that he is perfectly faithful and always has been. We know that he is perfectly faithful even in his own suffering. And we know that he is a faithful and merciful high priest who knows and cares for his people. So what's the conclusion of all of that? What do we come to at the end of a passage like that Take heart. Christian, take heart. And I do not mean buck up, grin, and bear it. I do not mean that we are called to be a stoic people who find our strength in just getting through another day. I say take heart with the fullness of understanding that we can wait with endurance that is joyful and peaceful even in the midst of suffering. We can celebrate Palm Sunday, the time when the king rode into his city, and we can look forward to the time when the king will come again. And we can do that full of joy and full of expectation. Because when he came the first time, he did exactly what he said he would do. And because of his perfect faithfulness, we can wait faithfully because we know that he will do it again. A couple of things for us to think about. First of all, take heart because our course is set and we know the one who sets it. Is your race hard? Is the course long? Are you running on empty? Take heart because your course is set. The one who called you to faith in the first place and the one who will bring your faith to its perfect completion has overseen and outlined every step, every hill, every valley, every triumph, every tragedy, he knows, 
and he purposes it for our good. So run well. Lay aside those distractions that would take your eyes off of Jesus. Put to death that sin that keeps us from running faithfully. Second, take heart. Our Savior has overcome. There's any number of reasons why we get weary. Sometimes it's the circumstances out there that I have no control over that seem to be pressing in on me constantly. The job that I might or might not lose, the health that comes and goes, the relationships that although I pour into don't seem to ever be peaceful. Sometimes the weariness comes from my own internal struggle. The idea that I am so burdened and wearied by my own sin that I don't have the courage or the strength to look up toward the God who saved me take heart, our Savior has overcome. What Christ accomplished on the cross was accomplished perfectly and once and for all. And there is no circumstance that snatches us out of his hand. And maybe even more comforting, at least for me, is the idea that no sin of mine can snatch me out of his hand. That although sorrow over my sin is appropriate, repentance is appropriate, humility is is appropriate, despair is not. Because his work on the cross left nothing for me to work to accomplish. There's nothing left to pay. That's why Romans 8.1 can say, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, not because our sin is not bad, but because Christ has taken the condemnation for us. And how fitting it is that that chapter ends with Paul's assurance, his conviction that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And finally, for those of us that are weary, waiting, and attempting to remain worshiping, take heart because our strength isn't our own have to be often reminded that it is never about my ability to successfully work through my circumstances. That I look to God who set me on this course and who will sustain me on this course. It's been true all the way through the Bible. We have Psalms, like Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And if he made heaven and earth, surely he can get one feeble, failing man from one end of his life to the next. And oh, he's given us everything we need to run well. The Holy Spirit to bring us to conviction and repentance, to gift us to service his perfect word that exposes our sin and encourages us through his reminding of his faithful promises, the body of Christ to come around us and encourage us to run well to bear one another's burdens. And he sealed us with the promise that the one who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we're a people that continually say, come, Lord Jesus, that cry out, Hosanna. Lord, save. I pray that we're a people that look to the future with great hope and great confidence, and even great joy. And Lord, I know that there are people here today that are weary, that are tired, 
whose strength is failing for any number of circumstances. Lord, would you bear them up? Would you give them hope, comfort, and peace because of who you are and what you've accomplished? Lord, will you make us a people that long for the coming of the King and who cannot wait to be in your presence? What a wonderful, marvelous day that will be. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, your church desperately waits for your return. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.